All right, well, it's good to see you tonight. Let's look at, our, look at the Word tonight in the book of Galatians. We are continuing our study in freedom in Christ. And Paul is really beginning to get to the part now where he's talking about where that freedom comes from, where it arises from. Uh, he has talked about and dealt with uh, the whole concept of the law. He's been very clear about that. He has been very disappointed, if you will, and that's probably a mild word for it, but he's been very perplexed that these Galatian Christians who have heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, have now returned to sort of a legalism in their life, believing that, that they are right with God because of things they do and, and the way they do them. Well, Paul, last week, or two weeks ago, because I was out ill last Sunday night, but if you recall, he talked about the whole intent of the law. And we talked about how the law served as two purposes. It served as a jailer. It kept us locked up until the time of Christ. It kept us sort of uh, within the confines. And then it also served as a tutor. Tutor. Uh, it tutored us. It, it schoolmastered us. It was the pedagogos. It, it showed us our need for the Savior. It showed us our need for the gospel. And so the law is not without purpose. The law was not without a goodness. It had a, it had a good purpose and a good reason. But now that Christ has come and now that the gospel has come, the law is not what we are to focus on. Now this morning we talked about the new covenant, how now the law is written on our hearts and written on our minds. And, and really that is sort of, I think, a, a synonym or a, a way of saying the Holy Spirit now is working within us to show us right and show us wrong and show us what God desires and give us the power and the ability to be able to follow that and, and be obedient to it. And Paul is very concerned that we understand that. Because if we don't, we will find ourselves in bondage to lists of do's and don'ts and, and we'll think that if we don't do things exactly right and follow them exactly to the T, the, the way somebody else or we think they ought to be, then we find ourselves really caught up in a very frustrating sort of way in our Christian life. And I'll be the first to tell you, we as Baptists have been the world's worst at times at putting a lot of legalism and a lot of, a lot of do's and don'ts on one another that have nothing to do with the gospel at all. And, and Paul is concerned about that for the Galatian Christians, and he's concerned about that, I think, for the grace Christians as well. I want you to hear what he says as we continue in chapter 4 and talk about the fact tonight that we were once slaves to sin, but now we are sons of God by adoption. And I want us to think a little bit about adoption tonight because that's important. Paul writes in verse 1, Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, that last part of that verse is so important. And, and don't get caught up because he says sons there, and he uses the word that is the masculine form. He's talking about we become children of God. We receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I want to read on just a little further. I said I was going to stop at verse 7, but I want to read through verse 11. However, at at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, see that that parallel there that goes right along with with the Sermon on the Mount we talked about? When Jesus said, say that day and that last day, depart from me for I never knew you. Paul says here, the real essence of this is not, not just that you know God, but more important that you are known by God, that he knows you in an intimate sort of way. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul is greatly concerned here that we understand the importance of sonship, the importance of being a child of the living God. Now understand God has, in a very real sense, only one son. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Only, only one natural deserving son, perhaps we could call it. But he has many sons and daughters, children, who are, bo- who are adopted into the family by virtue of the new birth and brought into a relationship through that process of adoption. Sonship is a gift of God's grace. Sonship to God is a gift of grace. It's not a natural sonship, but an adoptive sonship, and one that is very explicit throughout the New Testament. The the whole idea of adoption is, is at the center of the gospel. The whole idea of the gospel is permeating the New Testament, and it shows that it really is not only our, uh, not only a gift of grace, but it is perhaps the highest privilege that the gospel has to offer. One of my favorite writers, J.I. Packer, says perhaps even a higher privilege than justification. Now, we talk about justification by faith alone being at the very heart of the gospel. That we are justified, that is declared right and declared righteous and imputed with righteousness by the, by the declaration of God by faith alone. And that is a great privilege. That is having our, our sins forgiven and being imputed the righteousness of Christ. Justification is being able to have God, the judge, look at us and, and declare not guilty on the basis of Christ. That is a great privilege. But that is a forensic or a judicial privilege to have our sins forgiven. Adoption, which is based on justification, is a deeper privilege because it is not judicial, it is not forensic, it is personal. It is relational. It is family. It is being brought into the family of God. And our understanding of Christianity will never be any better than our grasp of adoption. Our, our, our understanding and our appreciation of the Christian faith will never be greater than our understanding and our grasp of adoption. If you look back in the Old Testament, when, when Moses was out in the wilderness and he was wandering there just before 
he was brought down into to, uh, Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he saw the burning bush. He heard the burning bush speaking, and he responded to it. And he talked to the bush, and the bush gave forth, or, or the voice out of the bush. The bush didn't do it. It was just a dumb bush. But, but the voice that was in the burning bush spoke forth a, uh, a name of God, the covenant name of God. What was that? Yahweh, or I am that I am. That was the covenant name of God. And all through Old Testament history, they wouldn't even speak that name because that was the greatest name, the holiest name, the, the grandest name that could be said for God. And, and so they would not speak it. They wouldn't even write it. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, they, they would write a, sort of a, a, a phrase or a word that they knew what it meant, but it wasn't the, the full name for Yahweh. It was just an understanding that it represented it because they didn't want to write down the, the real and the full name. That was an important name. That is the covenant name under the old covenant of God. But under the new covenant, there is a new covenant name, I believe. And that new covenant name is not Yahweh, although Yahweh is still an important name, it tells a lot about the nature of God. But the covenant name of God under this new covenant is now Father. Father. When we're in the new covenant, we call him Father. The, the Sermon on the Mount that we just spent 31 weeks studying and going through, you find that concept all in there, especially when it comes to the prayer. He doesn't say, come before God and say, Oh, Yahweh, I am that I am, mighty God. He does say, pray this way, our Father. Hallowed and holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and all of those things. But the covenant name even in prayer, and the Sermon on the Mount really is, if you look at it in its ful fulfillment, we talked about it being talking about kingdom uh, living in a fallen world. It really is about being a part of the covenant family of God what it means to live in the covenant family of God. That's what the kingdom is. So Father is now his new covenant name. And Paul says here, I want you to understand that as long as a child is an heir, he doesn't differ a whole lot from the slave. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, if a child who is an heir to the kingdom is still immature, he is told what to do, where to go, what to study. He is kept bound in, if you will, sort of in a, a jailer kind of thing. And he has guardians and he has teachers that teach him certain things. Although, even though he is that way and looks like a slave, is told what to do and commanded what to do, in a very real sense of the word, he is the owner of all things. Everything that is the Father's is his. But he's under guardians and under managers until the Father says at a certain time, at a certain event, that he is no longer under that. But then he is a joint heir with the Father over everything. Paul says, while we were children, and I think the word there, children, is, is being used as a, as a way of saying, but before we came to maturity in Christ, before we came to know Christ, we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, elemental things are, are things like basic principles. Some One translator in translating this said, we were under the ABCs of the gospel. You know, just the very basic, very elemental things. And while we were children, we were in bondage under the elemental things, the law. 
It kept us in bondage. It kept us held back until the fullness of time. God sent His Son forth, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Do you know what? Do you know the beauty of adoption in our own day? Is that here is a child who has no parents. I mean, they've got parents, obviously, biologically, or they wouldn't be here. But they have no parents who really care for them. They have no parents to love them. They have no parents to, to guide them and teach them and direct them in their life. And some couple, not because they have to, not because anybody can make them do it, not because even the, the child, the baby, or the child has done anything at all to deserve it. That couple says, we want you to come and be a part of our family. We want to we take you into our family, and you will be our child, and we will be your parents. I will be your father, the husband says, and I will be your mother, the wife says, and you will come in. There may be other children in the family. There, there may be natural born children within the family. But this is one who is not naturally born. This is one who has no claim on that family's uh, involvement whatsoever. And especially no claim on the inheritance of that family. They're just out there. But by, if you will, if I could use the word here, but by grace... A couple says, we want to receive you. We want to take you into our family and make you a part of our family. And we adopt you in. That's, that's the beauty of adoption. One who has no rights, has not earned it, but is given a place in the family by the sheer grace of those. There was another element to Paul's understanding of adoption I think that sometimes we overlook if we don't do a little deeper research and that is that in Paul's day they were operating under Roman law and Roman law saw adoption as a very very serious thing as a matter of fact if you adopted a child or adopted someone into your family you could not under adoptive law under Roman law you could not ever disown that adopted child. You could disown your natural children. If they did something to shame you, and parents don't look around and think about it, uh, you know, if they did something that upset you or bothered you or they squandered your property, you could disown them. You could say, you're out of the will. You're out of the family. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. You are on your own. You could do that with a natural born child. You could not do that with an adoptive child. So I think the whole concept of adoption, as Paul is giving it here, not only is showing us the, the beauty of grace, the beauty of being brought into God's family, but it's also showing the security that belongs there. The security that God will protect and keep His own. The security that God will never disown those who belong to Him. Paul says, therefore, or in verse 6 he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son. Do you see that? Notice that. Because you are sons, little s. 
He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, capital S, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's a very intimate expression. It's a heart cry that cries out for the the heart and the love of the Father and expresses that love back to Him. It's a cry of, you know, some have translated that, and I I, I hesitate to do so because it almost becomes too trite in our vocabulary, but it's almost like crying out, Daddy! But it's richer than that. It's crying out with a heart of gratitude. It's crying out with a, a heart of appreciation to say, Thank you, Father. Abba, Father, this relationship is so rich and so deep. And you are the initiator of it, and you are the cause of it, and you are the grantor of it. Paul says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave under the law. You're no longer a slave to the what he says up here. You observe days and months and seasons and years. What he's saying there is you go through all these rituals, all these do's and don'ts, and trying to live it up to the T so that you can look good and look religious or look holy in the eyes of others. It's not a matter of looking holy in the eyes of others. It's a matter of being holy in the presence of God. He says you're now no longer a slave but you're a son, and you're an heir. That is, you inherit. You are in the inheritance line of all that is God's. You are a child of the king, and you inherit, and you reign with him in glory. The scripture pictures that in a lot of places to show how real that is. In the epistle, of, in John's epistle, first epistle, he, he talks about sonship a lot. Turn over there with me to John Chapter uh, First John, excuse me, First John, toward the end of the Bible, end of the New Testament. He, he talks about and gives some thoughts on this matter of sonship. One of the things he says is sonship is the supreme gift of God's love. If you look there in chapter three, verse one, John says, "See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God." John says, there's the proof of God's love. He calls you a child. He says, you're in my family. We're called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Or you find love to God uh, and love to one's Christian brothers and sisters as really the ethic of sonship. If you look, if you will, in, in chapter 2, verse 15, Chapter 2, verse 15, where John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a strong statement that John makes. If your love and your passion and your, your, your worship is of things of the world, then it's an evidence that the love of God, the love of the Father, is not dwelling in that person's life. Or chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to jump all around here for a minute, but I want you to see all this. Uh, Still talking about the love of God. Chapter 5 and verse 1. 
1 through 3, really, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Understand, commandments there are just the work of the Spirit leading you through the Word of God in your life. One of the commandments of the believer in the, in the New Testament is love, love one another as Christ has loved you. Love one another in the same way that Christ loved you and gave himself for you. That's the main commandment for believers. And then he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And by this the world that will know that, you have been, that I have been sent by the Father if you have unity. And that unity is founded upon love for one another. So our evidence of being disciples of Christ and our evidence to the world that Jesus is truly the Messiah who has come, the Son of God in the flesh, is that we love one another and function in unity with one another. Or you can look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, a part of the ethic of sonship is a love for our Christian brothers and sisters. A love for one another. Or chapter 3, verse 10. Where John writes these words, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was evil, the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Or chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us not, excuse me, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Or verse 21 of that same chapter. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Love to God Knowing Him and loving Him and love for one another is the ethic of sonship. He also says that righteousness and avoidance of sin is the evidence of sonship. In 2.29, when he says, if you, know, uh, if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. He talks about not practicing sin, but practicing righteousness. Or if you look in 3, 9, and 10, he says, no one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. We've already looked at that. If you practice righteousness, you're not uh, practice. If who, the one who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, we know that we still sin. But John is saying here there's a difference between sinning and practicing sin. Practicing sin is an ongoing pattern, an ongoing 
being tied up in it, wrapped up in it, captivated by it. And this freedom in Christ that God gives is a freedom from that. Then John's going to talk about in this book a fourth thing, seeing Jesus and being like him is the hope of sonship. And verse three, chapter 3, verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he, just as he is pure. And everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. But those who are in Christ have a hope of being like him, have a desire to be like him, and they, they practice righteousness because the Spirit of God has been given to them and lived out in their life. This is what Paul so desperately wants the Galatians to realize. That the freedom comes in Christ. He says in verse 9 or, or verse 8, he said, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. That's idolatry. He said, until the Spirit of God breaks through and sets you free, you are a slave to idols. You give yourself to things that are not gods. You give yourself to things and people that, that just want to use you and, and just want to take advantage of you. But when you are in Christ, all of that changes. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You, you go back to chapter to verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. It said, when we were children, we were held in bondage under elemental things. And in, in verse 9, he says, and you want to go back to the elemental things. You want to go back to the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe all these rituals. You, reserve all, you observe all these do's and don'ts and Things that have nothing to do with the gospel. I fear for you, Paul says. Because I fear that you're placing your trust in what you can do and what you won't do and how you can be right and pure in your own strength. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now, Paul came and labored in Galatia and preached them the gospel and taught them the gospel taught them about the grace of God, taught them about what Christ does when he radically changes a life and sets you free from the bondage of slave and the bondage of sin and the bondage of the law. And Paul says, unless you understand this, you will never understand the freedom that is in Christ and in the gospel. Unless you understand this, You'll always be living in a fear. You'll always be living in a, in, a, in a bondage that never gives you the greatest joy, the fullest experience of walking with the living Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that more next week. As we un or not next week, two weeks from now, as we unfold that a little further. But the real purpose, the real desire of Paul writing to the Galatians and writing this letter to you and me is that we would find great joy and great freedom, breaking the bondage of the law and being set free in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again tonight for our time together in your word. We thank you for the worship, singing of praises to your name. And Father, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit will guide us into absolute freedom in Christ, absolute freedom in our walk with you we might know what it means to be sons and daughters of the living God by adoption brought into your family not because we deserved it not because we had any right to it but because of your grace thank you Father we pray in Jesus name